Hi, my name is Olivia DeBersier, and you're listening to The Gateway Presents. Today, you'll be hearing from Peter Hewley, the live animal supervisor at the Royal Alberta Museum. Known for his work in the bug room, Hewley is a passionate advocate for all those things that flutter, buzz, chirp, and crawl. He received his Bachelor of Science with a specialization in zoology from the University of Alberta and has been working and volunteering at the museum since 1998. He is also known for his regular weekly column on CBC Radio 1's radioactive program, which ran from 2006 till 2012, where he'd bring in live animals to scare host Peter Brown while educating listeners about the marvels of the bug world. I met up with Pete in the bug room to talk about his job in science education, his time at the university, and why we should appreciate those tiny things that make up so much of the animal kingdom. So... What got you into bugs? And was it something that was always an interest of yours? Was there like a particular defining moment? Uh, very good question. Uh, I, I try to consider myself an unbiased animal person, and there's just more bugs than everything else put together. So I grew up here in Edmonton, uh, you know, in my own backyard, and flipping over rocks in the city, you're not finding elk or cougars or anything like that. You're finding slugs and centipedes and things. So I think that the, this sort of uh, accessibility and ubiquity of insects was something that was really interesting, is that no matter where you go, you flip over a rock, you're going to find some critters. You're not necessarily, I mean, love to see the big charismatic megafauna, but it's a little bit harder to find. And so, you know, nothing against dogs and cats or fish or, or birds or anything like that. I think they're all fantastic. Um, but, you know, somewhere along the line, I think I realized that every, I, you, you come across a lot of bad attitudes towards invertebrates and snakes and things like that. And so I feel like the reptiles and the, the uh, inverts, they need, they need an ambassador more than the, the mammals and the birds do. Unless we're talking about rats or raccoons or maybe pigeons or something like that. For the most part, if you're warm-blooded and furred or feathered, you're popular with people, whereas scaly, not enough legs, too many legs, something like that, um, people just don't, don't seem to like them or have the same kind of, I'm going to say, like reverence for them, I suppose. So, so sort of early on, I realized, man, some people have a bad attitude towards this stuff. And then somewhere down the line, I think after I started with the museum, I realized, hey, maybe I can actually help people with that or try to change some minds. So, yeah. What was your program at school? So yeah, I did uh, specialization in animal biology through the biological sciences. Um, and I knew from day one what I wanted to study. You know, um, I actually think I was accepted to arts and then I decided that I was gonna actually take a year off. Um, and then finally found my way back just going straight to science, uh, knowing exactly what I wanted to do. Animal biology was what, you know, or zoology they used to call it. And I found, because I knew, I already had a sweet plum job here at the museum and I was already talking to the public about this kind of stuff. And I wanted to sort of remain general. I felt like if I if I focused on you know one species or the glands of one species or something like that and got into a real sp backed myself into a corner as it were with a specialization uh, in terms of a master's or a PhD then you know that kind of you, you become um, you know more and more about less and less and not nothing against PhDs or masters by any stretch but just knowing that I was kind of into that public education uh, and not necessarily only at an academic level I felt like being able to study mammals being able to study birds being able to study insects and, and sort of just having a very generalized approach to all these things um, was the way to go so the nice thing about the specialization where you don't actually have a requirement for us for a uh, is that I, I could absolutely go off the deep end with respect to biology but I did uh, history philosophy religion um, a whole bunch of different things. So that was, I think, one of the coolest things was being able to somewhat take the the, uh, the scenic route and uh, and check out a bunch of other sorts of things that helped give me some sort of an understanding in uh, a, a broader uh, range of things. But honestly, that I really love being surrounded by people that that thought the same way, that that kind of uh, you know encouraged that debate. There was definitely a, a real sense of like these are my people. This is what I was supposed to do is is to do this. It was wonderful. Honestly, I, by the time I got to 
like my last year, I think I had nothing but sciences, multiple labs, and I was just living and breathing this stuff. And uh, I still feel like to some extent, you know, maybe some of it could be a little bit more polished if I, if I did talk to more university groups than say preschools, um, you'd be able to practice that stuff a little bit more. But st still like having that understanding and then being able to talk to the public, um, what's the point of doing this research if we only share it amongst those academic circles? Like it really is for hopefully for the betterment of all of society and being able to teach little kids all the way up to university um, is uh, I think it's just an amazing opportunity. And so like I say, you know, trying to change the world one mind at a time. What to you makes like a good science communicator? Someone who, who is able to talk to a multitude of ages and backgrounds, like how do you do that? Yeah, I think it's sort of a challenge. I mean, to some extent, you kind of have to read your audience um, as they come, especially in a museum-type setting where you could just have any group of people roll through. Any single family could have a range from, like, you know, a toddler up to a, an actual academic adult. Um, you know, how do you sort of read that crowd and decide uh, how you pitch that? And sometimes it's actually, you know, not talking down, but changing the way you'd speak to the kids, but then having sort of an aside with a little bit more details for the adults. Um, and then, of course, being able to say, okay, you know what, I've got a booking with preschoolers, or I've got a booking with an entomology class. Now I know that I can actually, like, kind of tune my uh, my approach to that audience. Um, if, you, if you just use a lot of technical jargon, it goes over people's heads. It, it almost comes off as a little bit elitist to some extent. So, so yeah, it is a a little bit of a challenge, but I think, um, yeah, you need to understand the, the subject matter. And that comes off so apparently, like when you read an article or you deal with somebody who doesn't quite grasp that stuff or there's just the tiniest little thing that's wrong, you know, you see a Latin name that has the species epithet capitalized or something like that, you're like, man, okay, well, can I trust anything else because they don't know that basic element of sort of, uh, you know, scientific writing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think being able to, to not dumb it down and not lose something in translation, that's the biggest, the biggest challenge. So I think that does ha really stem from a grasp on the subject matter and then a respect and a capacity to talk to that audience. And how you get to that, I'm not really sure. You know? so, so I often just kind of read faces like, in 2009, I wrote a kid's book, uh, like Bugs versus Humans, sort of just like a trivia book. And it, it was supposed to be for an 8 to 12-year-old audience, but I like really look at it as an 8 and up audience. Um, and that was a bit of a challenge, working with the editors and things. And, and because there's a lot of stuff, they're like, kids don't understand this. And you're like, yes, they do. There's a real tendency, I think, to maybe underestimate kids and what they're learning. And it's all just your approach and how you explain that stuff. And so that was an interesting uh, challenge or an interesting experience to try to have somebody telling me, no, uh, kids can't understand why uh, insects can tolerate radiation more than humans can. Yes, they can. Just, you just give me a chance. So we'll find a way to explain it and not lose anything. Because I mean, man, with the grade twos, I get uh, the most incredible questions. And sometimes it's actually like a, a really impressive, like philosophical question. And it's almost more of like a, like, you know, a, a question about the, the universe. That's one of those things that I feel you know, you have to be able to handle just about any question. And it's been really fun um, dealing with those young audiences because you never know, like those, those little inquiring minds, they have such amazing questions and, and sometimes better, better stuff and harder things to, act, to answer uh, than you would get from a university audience. And who really needs to learn this stuff? And I think it's, it, that's, hopefully we get to that idea that it's like we do research, hopefully to advance all of society's knowledge. And if we can't communicate that stuff to the public, if we can't communicate that even to the, the supervisors and the people who are making budgetary decisions as to whether we can fund this research, like you have to be able to justify and rationalize this stuff. And the better, the better you know your audience, the better you can, you can pitch something that's actually gonna, gonna get the job done, so. Tying into that, we've had a lot of news about climate change and that sort of thing. How are bugs and vertebrates being impacted by that and what is their role in that? I mean, I think to be fair, if we have, um, 
you know, the vast majority of all life on Earth is probably an invertebrate, you know, and nothing against them. I'm sure the microbes would have something to say about that and the nematodes and all those guys. But again, a massively diverse and abundant group of organisms is, of course, they're going to be affected by climate change. And I think we have a tendency to, again, look at the, that charismatic megafauna, watch out for the blue whales, watch for the elephants and the tigers. And those things are incredibly important. Um, but you know, it's not as though we're going to get a lot of uh, buy-in for save the tarantulas or save the cockroaches or something like that. But if it, it all, it affects all of us. We're all in this together. And it doesn't matter what species we're talking about. It doesn't matter what continent you live on. It doesn't matter um, what socioeconomic class you are. We are all affected by this stuff. And I think that that's the biggest thing. And, and I think that having a bad attitude or a contempt for any particular group of animals or, or organisms is, is unhealthy and shows a disconnect. So, so it does. It absolutely does. And I think that there's a lot of research um, within entomology and, and other invertebrate zoology fields that is pointing towards climate change. And whether that's, um, you know, warming trends allowing certain species to move further north, um, there are certain disease-carrying organisms that have historically been kept out of certain areas due to uh, the cold winters, um, and they're just not so cold anymore. So we will start to see that stuff. And so if we're going to start having mosquitoes carrying more uh, historically tropical diseases in Canada, it is going to be something that we need to think about, and not just as, as, a, as a society, and for, you know, say, the um, healthcare professionals, but also just for all of us, like um, what we have to deal with, what we have to worry about, um, crops, uh, invasive species, there's a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of it that we look at maybe the negatives. We're like, oh, this new species is moving in. The Asian longhorn beetle is devastating forests and it's able to survive in, in the higher latitudes because it's not so cold any longer. Um, there's, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. Does it affect us? It affects all of us, absolutely. How it's going to affect us, I think that's the challenge. And if there are more insects than everybody else put together, it most certainly affects them. You know, I mean, if we're looking at more than a million species, they say one in five living things named by science is a beetle. So it's definitely affecting all of it, absolutely. And that's, that's the trick is we're all in it together. We're all earthlings here. And, uh, and hopefully we can, uh, I don't know, maybe pave a way where we can respect all those other creatures we share the earth with rather than looking at it as, as ours to destroy as we see fit. But what would happen if we lost the mosquitoes? There would be a massive gap in just about every terrestrial and freshwater ecosystem food web um, that we couldn't make up for. And it's just that sort of, how do you get past the point that just because you don't know what they're good for doesn't mean that they aren't good for anything. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, so I mean, that's a, that's a daunting task. Um, and to think that, you know, just by giving tours <laughs> to kids, that maybe that's actually what I'm trying to go for. But yeah, like I say, we, I think we can change the world one mind at a time and, uh, and hopefully make it a better place by, by doing so. So yeah, um, one of my favorite quotes is in 1968, Bab Diume said, in the end, we can serve what we love. We love what we understand and we understand what we're taught. And kind of going off of that, so Alberta, we don't have like giant centipedes or enormous flocks of butterflies. So what does Alberta have to show for our our insects? What, what are like the coolest things around here? I mean, I think uh, same thing with that ubiquity and just ridiculous diversity of insects. And I think one of the interesting parts about my job is to identify bugs for the public. So you get a lot of different types of people who maybe are interested in nature or what is this spider? Is it going to kill me? What do I got to do? I need to call an exterminator. And so, you know, you can kind of talk some people down off the ledge and you could also share some inf information with people who are just wanting to know um, for their kids' sake and for their own sake what's living in their own backyard. Um, this is actually probably the, the 
northernmost extent of the monarch butterflies as well. So we, we you know the milkweed starts to run out about midway up the latitude in Alberta. Um, so it's pretty rare to see them up in Edmonton. But I have over the course of my life seen monarchs here a couple of times. And this is the generation that then flies all the way south to Mexico and waits out the winter and then flies north to the to the southern states again. So you know we're kind of on. I mean the monarchs are sort of probably the most famous um, migration for insects, and we actually see them up here. This is about as far north as they go, and they say nuts to this. I'm going south. I'm not. You know the the seasons are getting uh, shorter and the, it's getting colder. So so there's there's really lots of really really cool stuff here, and it's just that a lot of people don't seem to know about it. And nothing again like obviously the tropics has a lot of amazing really big. You know I guess the megafauna as far as invertebrates are are concerned, but uh, we still have some really interesting stuff here. I mean we got uh, western black widows in southern Alberta. We have uh, the northern scorpion, the only scorpion that's found in Canada is found in southern uh, southern Alberta and BC. Um, we've got a couple of species of wind scorpions or camel spiders, if you want to call them that. They're like a centimeter long, teeny little guy. So there's still a few things that I'd like to to try to catch over the course of my career. Um, and then the other one, I guess, would be the the minor ground mantis. It's uh, the only mantis that gets up into this part of Canada. Um, and it's, I don't think there's actually a record for Alberta. But the question is, again, turn the right scientist loose in the right environment, and you might be able to find out, hey, wow, we actually have these guys here. So, so yeah, there's still more stuff to discover. Don't let anyone tell you we know everything on the planet or that there isn't still a whole bunch of things that are worth researching, um, really only hitting the tip of the iceberg. Um, so it's kind of cool to think that we're just sort of at the top end, the northernmost range for a lot of these species. And potentially as things start to get warmer, we're going to see things moving further north. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. So yeah, I'm really glad I'm in public education. I'm really glad that um, you know I can talk to somebody on a given day about insects, about coral, about you know, uh, turtles or something like that, uh, salamanders and things, and just generally knowing, it's like that more old school generalized naturalist that people don't seem to really be anymore, right? Is that, so So yeah, I think that um, definitely being a kid, I feel like that's kind of where it is, is you're just like anything I can see. If we go to Banff and I see a bear, that's amazing. If I flip over a rock in my yard and I find a, uh, a spider, that's also amazing. And that, that kind of just sense of wonder and appreciation of all those things, and I mean, I don't know, maybe it's for better or worse, but that, that sort of old school, you know, I feel like, you know, Audubon or somebody like that, it was just like, you just knew everything. You spent as much time in the woods. And maybe that's also something that we've sort of lost is that just basic observational science of what do these animals do as opposed to let's pull them into a lab and, and just, just investigate one particular thing. And I, of course, that is absolutely necessary, uh, especially to tease out some of those intricacies. Um, but, you know, actually getting out into the woods and observing these things. Um, Weird example, the millipede decapitating dung beetle of the Amazon, Deltochylum valgum. So this was a beetle that we've known about for at least 100, maybe even 200 years. And this is a dung beetle that apparently, we don't even know, but doesn't collect dung. It actually goes after dying and injured millipedes headbutts them in the neck until it decapitates them. So sort of like a, a Glasgow kiss to decapitation um, with a very weird sort of notched clypeus that they have that, that helps them do that. And then they have this weird sort of bow leg on the, the hind leg and a weird sort of um, a little bit of a declivity on the elytra that allows them to basically throw the millipede over their shoulder and drag it home. Now this was only observed I think in 2005 using night vision cameras in pit traps and what happened was they only found these beetle, beetles in pit traps that already had dying and injured millipedes in them. 
because they were in pit traps, they couldn't drag anybody home. So we did see that the beetle actually devours the, uh, the millipede and leaves nothing but the little rings of exoskeleton behind. But do they drag the millipede home and have a ball of millipedes like a regular dung beetle has a ball of dung that grows fungus and they lay their eggs into? Um, millipedes really just like a long digestive tract full of dung wrapped in meat. But the fact that we could know about a species for 200 years maybe and not have any idea how they make a living was really interesting. I mean, you got to see the night vision camera stuff of this because it's got that kind of eerie green uh, beetle's eyes are glowing and he's headbutting this millipede to death. Um, but just the fact that we could, just knowing it, just having it with a pin in it, with a name in a, in a uh, museum setting or in a collection somewhere, doesn't mean we know anything about how it makes a living. And so that's again with that, there is so much stuff for us left to know. Do not ever get to that, you know, ridiculously um, arrogant idea that we know it all, we've understood everything, we've discovered everything. There is more stuff under our noses everywhere. And really the challenge now, two, two major things I would say is that there's not enough people going into the science to sort of pick up that torch from the old sort of folks that are dying off now and also that it's disappearing. It's disappearing out from under our noses before we even have a grasp on what it does or how important it is. And that's just terrifying. You know, it's a, it's a scary place to be at, but I think that same thing, like just understand we need to, we need to change our minds now and we need to make a difference now. And, uh, and how do we go about doing that? I don't have that answer, but, but uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully some young person that we can encourage will. So yeah, yeah, yeah hopefully, hope for a better future, I think for sure.